right. Well, well, let's get into God's Word right now, please. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah, a young man, coming right out of captivity, preaching God's Word. Preaching messages that reflect everything all the way to the end times and how God is going to work in Israel. His first message was a message of returning. The little remnant nation needed to return spiritually back to the Lord. And then, of course, the Lord would return to him, to them. And that was going to be a beautiful picture. Ultimately, that'll happen when Israel places their faith in the Messiah at the end of the tribulation period. They will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will believe. They will believe now for the first time as a nation that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah, the Savior of the world, his death for their sins. And it will all make sense. Right now, Israel's in blindness and God is working with both Jew and Gentile in a new man, Ephesians 2 says, called the church. But someday the church will be lifted off of the earth caught up in the rapture, and God will resume his program for the nation Israel. So it's a guarantee. When God made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 2000 BC, he said, Abraham, I will give you land, physical descendants, and spiritual blessings beyond belief that will flow to all the the nations. God said, I will do this no matter how you believe, no matter what your children do, I will give this to you. They haven't received it yet, which means... God is going to give it to them in the future, and he will. It's a glorious picture. So then, one night, in February of 519, Zechariah has eight visions given to him by the Lord. The first one was that all the Israelites knew that they were in a depressed place. They knew that they had been beaten down by many nations, and they were just a weak, struggling nation. What they didn't know was that the Lord was coming in their midst that the Lord was in their midst while they were working. That was the horse with the red rider. The second one, they knew they had enemies. They knew that they had been conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, and soon to come the Greeks and the Romans. But what they didn't know was that God was going to crush all of their enemies and put them out of existence. So that second, the second vision, how encouraging to be an Israelite to say, God is going to conquer every rebel power. Isn't that awesome? The third one, the man with the measuring line, the nation Israel knew Jerusalem was the capital. They knew that. What they didn't know was that God was going to bless beyond measure the nation Jerusalem or the city Jerusalem so that it would spill with no borders and fill with people and animals. Cattle of all kinds. Oh, incredible scene. God was going to bless Jerusalem. Wow. They, they, now they knew it. Listen, they knew they had an enemy called the devil, and they knew they were guilty of sin, but when they got the vision of Joshua the high priest with his filthy garments removed and the righteous robes of Christ put on, they knew not only do they have an adversary and a filthy, sinful situation, they knew they had an advocate who would step in and remove their iniquity in one day. Isn't that great? See how these visions just bring encouragement? We have the same thing. We know our sins have been paid in full. It happened on one day in history that Christ in his body bore the penalty of our sin, every sin paid in full. And when Christ cried out, Tetelestai, every sin, every wicked deed, wicked thought, wicked whatever it is that we've ever done, not just us, but all the world, paid in full. 
See, what a glorious truth. Tonight, we're looking at the fifth vision that Zechariah had, chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, as we look now at this next vision, I'm sorry, the fifth vision, Father, as we look at this fifth vision of the lampstand, help us to apply this truth not only to our understanding of Israel and the program for Israel, but also in a secondary way, how we as a church can gain insight from this text. So we want to apply your divine truth to our lives, keeping it always in context that this is for Israel, but we can learn much just by looking in and peering in your work with Israel, how you intend to work in the church. So bless us and challenge us and teach us, convict us, strengthen us for the work that you have while we're here on this earth. Thank you for our church, the joy, the fun we have singing and rejoicing together. I pray that you will be glorified in all that we do and say this week and in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Zechariah chapter 4. The fifth vision, it's the vision of the lampstand. Israel knew that they needed to be a light to the world. They knew it. Back in Exodus chapter 19, God said to Israel, when they're right at the base of Mount Sinai, God said, you, for me, will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. A nation of priests. Not just a tribe, not just Levi being priests, but every person, man, woman, boy, girl, would be a priest on behalf of God. What they would be doing is declaring the truth of God and the need of a Messiah to all the darkened nations around them. Did Israel succeed in their mission? They did not. But they will someday. They will someday. They will be finally the kingdom of priests that God intended for them in Exodus 19. Now, transfer this to the New Testament. We, in 1 Peter 2, are called a royal nation, a priesthood of believers. So in another sense, we are priests of God. Although we're not offering animal physical sacrifices like the Old Testament because Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice, therefore there is no more need for the temporary animal sacrifices, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. So I didn't get to this application this morning, but we as priests of God that have been cleansed and restored and commissioned, we have spiritual sacrifices to offer. Right? One of them is Romans 12, that we should, based on the mercies of God, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning my hands and my feet dedicated and used for God, for his glory. They go where he wants them to go. My hands will do what he wants them to do. I'm not in it for my agenda, my selfish pleasure, what I think is right, what I want. I'm totally wanting to dedicate myself to, Lord, what will you have me to do? Where will you have me go? What will you have me say? My life is no longer my own. I've been bought with the price. It's yours. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, good uh, words from our lips, the praise from our lips, is a spiritual sacrifice. So singing tonight, coming and gathering together in a corporate body and singing praises like you did, you are offering praise from your lips. God says that's a spiritual sacrifice, and I'm pleased with it. In Philippians chapter 4, when you give money to missionaries, when you give to God's work so that the gospel can go even further, that, according to Paul in Philippians 4, is a spiritual sacrifice. It is an aroma, like a sacrificial aroma going up to God, and he is pleased. Isn't that exciting? Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter uh, 15, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15 says, about in verse 12 or 13, that when we reach the lost with the gospel, 
when they come to Christ, that is a spiritual sacrifice to God. There are, that's a spiritual sacrifice. God is pleased with it. Isn't that great? So you may think uh, coming to church is just coming to church. No. No. This is God Almighty that we're approaching. It is our Savior whom we are worshiping, and we are His priesthood offering sacrifice and spir- uh, offering spiritual duties for Him. It's a great thing, isn't it? So this is what Israel has learned, and now in the next vision, an angel has to awaken Zechariah. It must be getting late in the night. He's been up all night, this poor guy. But now the angel comes again to awaken him. Here's what it says in Zechariah 4. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. So four visions down. The next one, he's like woken up. Verse 2. And he said to me, what do you see? So the angel takes Zechariah, wakes him up. Wake up, wake up, Zechariah, wake up. What do you see, Zechariah? And now he tells us, verse 2, So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold, a menorah, like you would have in the temple. A menorah, a lampstand of solid gold, with a bowl on top of it. Now that's unusual. The, te- the menorah in the temple, and in the tabernacle of Moses, did not have a bowl above it. It just was a, it was a candelabra with seven branches. Right, this one has a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Okay, so there's a bowl, like a reservoir, and then coming from the bowl, a pipe to every single branch of the candlestick. Well, can you picture that? A, seven, a seven-headed candlestick looked like an almond tree. It was designed to look like an almond tree with the trunk and then the branches because there was a budded flower made out of gold at the, where, the can, where the wicks were lit. But there's a big bowl, and coming out of the bowl, seven gold tubes. That's what it says. Let's look, and we're going to learn it. We're going to learn all about it. Look at verse 3. We're not done with the vision yet. Verse 3, he sees two olive trees are by it. Two olive trees standing. So you've got the one seven-branched menorah with a bowl above it with with seven conduits. And then on one side, you have an olive tree. And then on the other side, you have an olive tree. And look what's happening. One at the right of the bowl, the other at the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And, and I said, no, my Lord. All right, stop. That's where the vision is. We're going to learn the details of that vision at the end of the message. Because now, God is going to teach before he explains the whole menorah candlestick thing. Right? The vision of Joshua was about the high priest... And it was addressed to Joshua. Remember, Jesus addresses uh, the high priest, Joshua, about his commission and things. In chapter 4, he addresses not the high priest, but the governor, the political leader. It's the priest and the king. So think of it this way. Chapter 3 is about the high priest. Chapter 4, it's about the governor or the proto-king. There was no king at the time, but there was a governor. Okay? So this is about the kingly person, the one who had authority. Zerubbabel. 
So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Stop. Let's talk about Zerubbabel quickly. Because Zerubbabel is the one who led the people from Babylon, a five-month journey of 700 miles, into the destroyed promised land. And his job was to get this temple built. That's what God wanted him to do. Get the remnant back to the promised land and build that temple. Zerubbabel, whatever you do, build the temple because that is my capital and that's where I dwell and I want it back. So now, how many years have gone by? 16 years have gone by. What do you think everybody thought about Zerubbabel as the leader? Good guy, good leader, bad leader. I think they thought he was incompetent. First of all, they're a tiny, struggling remnant. They're not even a full nation. They're 50,000 people. They have no infrastructure, no army. They have no money. They really have no skills. And their leader, Zerubbabel, has only gotten the foundation laid and nothing else. They would say, Zerubbabel, what kind of leadership are you offering us? Right? He is defeated. He is discouraged. I bet he cried at night saying, man, why did God pick me to lead? I can't lead. Can you imagine if we had a church project and I were to say, yes, we're going to build a church and we're going to start tomorrow. Let's, and we go out and with shovels in hand, we, lay the, the, we sketch the foundation and we get it laid. And then after that, with so much discouragement and division and opposition, that we quit. And now 16 years later, we're looking, every day we come, we look at this and we're like, hmm, why do we have him as a pastor? Could we ever get rid of him? Maybe another person could come and get this thing built for us. You would be like almost in rebel state against the leader, wouldn't you? Go back to Haggai. We're in Zechariah. Go back to Haggai because Haggai has a message for Zerubbabel you've got to catch. Zerubbabel or Haggai preaches four messages. He's a man in his mid to late 80s, I believe. He preaches only four messages in three months and he's done. He's got a short and sweet ministry. Can I tell you what his third... Do you know his third message? I don't know if you've even read Haggai lately, but here's what it is. The third message we need to hear about because it ties in with Joshua the high priest. I'm going to throw this at you. Here it is. Haggai preaches a message and says, if, if a priest in their priestly garment has something unclean you know, in his, in his fold of his, his uh, garment... If he's, if he's got something unclean and he touches it, does the unclean thing become holy or does he become unclean? What's the answer? He becomes unclean because uncleanness transfers. When Adam sinned, everybody sinned. I have sinned. It's just transferred. Uncleanness contaminates holy things, right? Holiness does not, it doesn't go the other way except for Jesus, Right? Every time Jesus touched a dead person, I think as soon as he touched the dead person or touched a leper, wherever he touched was instant healing. Because for Jesus, holiness invades. But for us, uncleanness just contaminates. So Haggai's message was this. If you have something unclean and it touches something holy, does the holy thing stay holy or become unclean? And the answer is unclean. And then if you have something holy and it touches uncleanness, does the uncleanness become holy? And the answer is no. The holiness becomes contaminated because that's what sin does. It defiles and it contaminates. It's dirty. It's an abomination. It's disgusting. So Haggai said, so therefore everything that you touch is contaminated because you are wayward from God. 
And if you get back in step with God, then what you do is good for God, and he can bless it. But otherwise, he cannot bless it. That was that message. Now, here's what he says in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is, in be- this is right before the visions of Zechariah. Here's what Haggai says. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... Remember, Zerubbabel is discouraged. He's overwhelmed. He's defeated. He's hurting. He's depressed. Here's what God says. I will shake heaven and earth. Who's going to shake heaven and earth? God will. Zerubbabel doesn't have to do that. God will shake heaven and earth. Anybody know where that's quoted in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 12. Talking about the kingdom, we're not inheriting a kingdom that can be shaken. We are getting a kingdom that cannot be moved. God says, I will shake heaven and earth. Verse 22, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Who sits on the throne of all the kingdoms? Satan. And Satan is going to be overthrown someday. God's going to do it. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down. It's another theme of the Exodus. God says to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, don't worry about your enemies. I will take care of every single one of them in, in, in one day. I will overthrow them, I will shake them, and I will toss them down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Verse 23, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, does that pump some confidence in the leader? Verse 23 again, In that day, what day? When God shakes the kingdoms and overthrows them, when is that going to happen? At his second coming, when he sets up the kingdom, when Jesus comes back a second time, he is going to choose Zerubbabel out of all the dead. The dead are going to be raised up. He's going to take Zerubbabel in the millennial kingdom and give him great position. Awesome. That's great, isn't it? It'd be like God saying to you, Jeremy, when the church age is all done and everything is said and done, I am going to reward you beyond measure. You, as part of the bride of Christ, are going to be given great, great responsibility and duty on my behalf. We'd be like, thank you, Lord, and we would pour our heart into service right now, wouldn't we? Knowing that that was coming in the future. So this is what Zerubbabel, he just got that message. Now go to Zechariah 4. Here is the message, verse 6. Haggai gave gave Zerubbabel that message in December. Zechariah is giving him this message in February. All right, so just think of Christmas time in the night of Bethlehem. And now it's almost February. Zerubbabel is getting a back-to-back message by God. Don't you love God? He just, when we need encouragement, he just gives it to us. I can't even tell you how discouraged I've been the last six years. <laughs> Sounds terrible to say that, but I have been discouraged and overwhelmed and defeated and in despair. And sometimes we have just felt like, I'm not leaving the house. I'm not ever going to work again. I'm not ever going to go to church again. I'm just done. I can't do it. And then God knows to step in and just give you the encouragement you need. He is amazing. And he does that for Zerubbabel. Here's the message. This is the word, verse 6, of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel, you're not going to get your task done through your own power, through your own wisdom, through your own techniques, through your own organizational skills, you are not going to build the temple just because you are a a guy who's got some talent. 
It's not by might. It's not by man's resources or man's power that any spiritual work gets done. It's not that you're the cleverest person, Zerubbabel. It's not that you're the most eloquent and you have the best charisma. No, as a matter of fact, nobody likes you. You've been around 16 years. You've got nothing done. Everybody thinks you're a failure, but I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? The mountain in verse 7 are all the obstacles that Zerubbabel is facing. Enemy nations, huge armies against him, the Samaritans against him, his own people against him, his own discouragement and defeat. All of those great mountains are those obstacles. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. God says, when it comes to doing my work, I will make a way for you to do it. I will give you the next breath. I will give you the next step. Can I tell you a New Testament parallel? I'm going to tell you the New Testament parallel. In 2 Corinthians. All right, you know the story of Paul and the, Corinth- Paul and the Corinthians, right? Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm going to come visit you, but I'm going to come. Here is the Aegean Sea. Here is Ephesus, and here is Corinth. Ephesus, Corinth. Paul's in Ephesus. He says, I'm going to come around the Aegean Sea to visit you. But he didn't. Then, then he said, well, I'm going to come across the sea. And, and well, he, he made plans and then changed them. Made plans and changed them. And the Corinthians, did, they, they didn't like that. They didn't think he was trustworthy. So they suspected his leadership and apostleship for that and many other reasons. So Paul's trying to prove his apostleship. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. Whatever, something happened to me in Ephesus that was so despairing, he called it the weight of a ship's ballast. You know, when you, put, when you put a lot of weight in a ship, what happens to it? Your, your grandpa was a captain on, the lakes, on Lake Superior. He would know. What do you do when you add a lot and a lot of ballast and weight into a ship? It goes down and down and down. Eventually, the water comes over the side and you sink. Paul uses that terminology. He says, I despaired even of life. I thought, there's no way out of this problem except I just hope I die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He is that despairing of life. But then he says, but God, but God rescued me. And, and then he says, um, he says, I despaired even of life, but God rescued me, but he taught me a lesson that I will not trust in others, but that I will trust in the, that I will trust in the Lord to get me through this. And I trust that the Lord will deliver me from future things like that as well. I mean, it's just such a great text. But in chapter 4, he says, Paul's in a, when he was talking about how perplexed and despaired he was in chapter 1, in chapter 4, he says, um, I am perplexed, but not overwhelmed. I am beaten down, but yet somehow I find I can rise. I've been punched in the gut, but yet I can take the next breath. Like, no matter how, he says, literally, I was painted in a corner, I was tethered with a leash, where I felt I couldn't take the next step or, or even take another breath, but God gave me one more. He just gave me one more. He didn't give me a, a dozen more. He gave me one more. Then he gave me another breath. And then he gave me another breath. And when I thought I was perplexed and I didn't know what to do, he gave me wisdom for the very next decision. Not five decisions, but just one decision. Then he gave me wisdom for the next decision. It's such a great chapter four, 2 Corinthians 4. That's the idea. Zerubbabel, all of your obstacles will not defeat you. They will not overwhelm you. You will have the ability and endurance to take the next step and do the next work. Then he goes on. Verse 7, Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, O obstacles, or mountain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Grace began the project, and God's grace will end the project. Not because Robobel deserved it or could do it on his own. It's just God's grace from start to finish. Grace, grace. We don't have time to get there, but in Ezra chapter 3, they laid the foundation. 20 years later, Zerubbabel lays the capstone. That's in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. Do you know? Okay. We don't have time to go there. I'm sorry, but I'm just, I have so many details I want to give you. In Ezra chapter 6, do you know what happened when they laid the capstone of the temple, the final stone? Can you picture Zerubbabel? He like lifts up the stone, and everybody's watching as he sets it in place at the, at the top of the temple. And it's done. And they shout grace, grace to it. Then it says, with great joy, they had celebration together. It was all a community thing. They had a great joy together. They celebrated the Passover together with all of those who separated themselves from foreign gods. So it was a holy group. And then it says, for those who sought after the God of Israel. That's who was involved in the celebration. But it keeps saying joy, 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 celebration. I think we should do more celebrating this year. I think we should do and have way more fun and much more rejoicing and much more feasting with all that God is doing and, have, and, and, is, and is getting done. Don't you agree? It's a great, it's a great thing. Verse 8, God's not done. If that was all he said to Zerubbabel, I'd be like bouncing off the wall. But he's got more for Zerubbabel. Verse 8, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah said, saying, verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. That's the start. His hands shall also finish it. And they did. Does God care about our work? We're not saved by works. We're not saved by doing good or religion or ritual. But is God pleased with works that he has intended for us? We've been created for God's workmanship, to do good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. He delights in it. He's excited. When you come and you serve and you care about people and you reach the last and you pray together, God loves it. You know what? I think God in heaven right now is smiling on this little assembly saying, this is what I wanted my church to be like on earth, and it's happening in 2018. And it's because you're here. It's, it's great. His hand shall finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, that's the Messiah, to you. Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? You see, everybody mocked Zerubbabel because the world doesn't like small things. The world likes big things. People like big churches. They like big things. Small things don't seem to count much, do they? Small little church, small little corner, small little city, small little place. It's just small. Small, small, small. People despise small things. God, why does God love small things? Because when something great happens, who gets the glory? God does. Remember Gideon? Gideon had an army of 22,000 people, and he was all set for battle. Man, we can get those Midianites. We got 22,000. We got uh, 32,000. We can, 32,000. And then God pairs them down. Until how many men? 300. And now Gideon's looking like, 300 men, that's small. God says, well, now I can finally do something with you. Because you're not trusting in yourself, you're trusting in me. When Jesus is going to feed a whole group of people on a hillside in the Galilee, what does he do? He uses a little lunch. Five loaves, three small fish, barley loaves, tiny fish. He doesn't even use big fish. He uses small fish, it says in the Bible. Right? Again, just God loves to use little things. So we shouldn't despise little things. For who has despised the day of small things? 
the world does. For, listen to this next phrase in verse 10. For these seven, we don't know what the seven are, but we're going to find out. For these seven rejoice to see. All right, so whoever the seven is, they're going to be happy about, they're going to celebrate and be happy about something. They're going to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord. What are the seven? The seven eyes of the Lord that are watching everything on this planet. But God is watching us all week. He's watching us in worship. He's watching us at work, at, at recreation. He's watching us. But when he sees us doing his work, like the, the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, whether it's the building of it or the completion of it, God is celebrating in our work. He loves it. He loves to watch us serve. I mean, writing sermons and studying and looking at all the scriptures and memorizing, it's hard work. Um, it's very difficult. I, I'm scared to death to do this week after week after week. I would love an easy job where I can just like, I don't know, do something that I'm, that's, that's not so trying on me. But you know what? God loves the work that we do for him. Whatever work that happens. Doesn't, doesn't that, isn't that what it says? For these seven, the seven eyes of the Lord that see and scan everything on this earth, rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. When Zerubbabel is building that temple, God is celebrating and smiling, saying, wow, I told you he could do it. He's trusting me. He's depending on me. It's not by his might. It's not by his power. It was by my Holy Spirit, and it's happening. He loves it. He loves it when you pray, when you're reading scripture, when you're worshiping together, when you're acting as a church and you're using your gifts to one another. God loves it. He loves it. He's happy. He's rejoicing. And if there's anything we want to do, we want him to be happy and rejoicing, right? All right, verse 11. We've got a problem, though, and this is where we're going to finish. We've got a problem. We still don't know about the olive trees and the lampstand. What is this all about? So verse 11. Then I answered, <laughs> I love Zechariah, said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and his left? Good. We finally get to find out what the two olive trees are. And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains. Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. All right, so now we know. Now let's try to figure this out. The two olive trees are two people. They are the king and the priest of Israel. And they are dripping oil. That's not how you normally get olive oil. How do you normally get olive oil? You have to get the olives, you put them in big baskets, and then you crush the olives, you break them open, you put them in these big mesh bags, and then you set them on a stone, and then the oil drains out of the bags, the mesh bags. That first, just the weight of the olives on bag upon bag, and sometimes you'd have five bags stacked up, the weight of the olives themselves will force some of the oil out. It's the best, purest oil. You're, you're not crinkling the mesh bag so you don't get any gross dirt or parts of bag in it. You get the purest olive oil. That first pressing of olive oil is only for the menorah in the temple. Then when you put a stone on the bags, the stone pushes them down further. You get a second press of oil. And that was used for man. The first press was for God. The second one was for man. That's what you would use for cooking and for medicine. Then you would add more stones, a third pressing. By then you're going to get 
parts of olive pit and olive parts, and then you're going to get mesh bag parts and dirt, and that's what you would use for soap, you know, cleaning and stuff like that. Make sense? So the high, the priests, the Levites, they had to go through that process all the time. And they had to keep those little bowls with the wicks because that's how you lit full. Now, see, we can't comprehend this, you guys. You know why? Because you walk into a room, what's the first thing you do? Turn a light on, and the light's instant. You don't have to do any work for it. They had to labor to get the oil to light the wick. But now, they're not doing one thing. The oil is just coming into this big reservoir, and they have an endless supply of oil. Endless supply. The wicks... You can't use a wick without the oil. The wick is really part, practically inconsiderable when it comes to light. You need the oil. We are like the wick. The wick, it's burned, it's charred. You've got to trim the wick so you get a better... You know, if you don't trim the wick, what do you get? Lots of smoke, right? We've got to be refined. We've got to be trimmed. God has to be trimming us all the time, trimming out our flaws, changing our character so we can burn brighter for the Lord. The oil is the Holy Spirit, and we have an endless supply of the Holy Spirit. If we try to be lit just by ourselves with no oil, it doesn't work. It just gives a lot of smoke, like a lot of Christians. When we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, filling us, controlling us, remember, you are, you are given the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. You are immersed in the Holy Spirit 100%. You have the Holy Spirit 100% of him. Filling, so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, happens once when you're saved, and that's it. It is not repeatable. But being filled by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5 is a continual experience. We need to continually do that. Have the Holy Spirit be working in our life to produce the fruit of the Spirit, all of that. You, you make, make sense? So we need that continual supply. So the lampstand is being continually supplied by the power of the Holy Spirit. The wicks, they're giving off the light. But they're being trimmed constantly to give off the purest and the brightest light. So you have God's anointed ones being used of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work to be lights of the world. That's the whole idea. So listen, the nation Israel knew they had a job to do. They had to get this temple built. What they didn't know was God was going to give them a supernatural resource called the Holy Spirit to do it. God would give them the Holy Spirit to get the work done. They didn't know about that. They knew they had to get this thing built. They didn't know God will give them the Holy Spirit. It's not by might, not by power, but by an endless supply of the Holy Spirit. And the two anointed ones, I think, are Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. But in the future, Revelation 11, there are two witnesses that will stand before the Lord before he comes the second time. The two in Revelation 11 are also called olive trees. Same phrase in Zechariah as in Revelation 11. I think, I think they're going to be Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. I don't think it's Enoch. I think Enoch was raptured as a picture of the church. He doesn't have to come back. But I think it's Moses and Elijah that will maybe be the two anointed ones that will stand before the Lord when he comes in his second coming power and glory. Nonetheless, let's end with an application. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. Because now you know about Israel. Israel needs the Holy Spirit to fulfill their ministry of being a light to the world. They get an endless supply. It's not by their might. It's not by their power, but by the Spirit of God. But what about the church? Well, guess what? The church is the light to the nations today. Jew and Gentile in one body of believers. 
In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. All right, so the lampstand in Zechariah 4 is Israel. Who's the lampstand in Revelation 2? The church. This is a light to our community. You have done the night in Bethlehem. You've done the wild game feast. We had some great things in November as outreaches so people could hear the gospel and respond to it by faith. This church is a lampstand in Hermantown, and God has actually placed it here as a lampstand in, in Hermantown. But if we, if we reject his word and we are not empowered by the Spirit, what does he do, what does he do with our light? He snuffs it out. So verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where... Well, verse 4. Nevertheless, God says, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have left, deliberately left, your first love. Listen, you guys. For the church in Ephesus, it wasn't an accident. They didn't just get busy doing other things. They, they just they replaced their love for Christ with other things. It was an intentional... It was just a deliberate thing. It happened. And it can happen to any church. Therefore, verse 5, Therefore, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. That's, their, that's losing the life of the church. Listen, the life of this church is the Holy Spirit. It is not the cleverness of a pastor. It is not the study and the teaching of the pastor. It is the Holy Spirit. I could manufacture all sorts of techniques I could actually have the furnace blower kick on at certain times to, just to give you the idea of something great is happening here. There are techniques. I could do all sorts of antics to draw huge crowds here. Really, we could do all sorts of things. We could offer free banana split Sundays at 6 o'clock Sunday night. Come out for ice cream. I mean, there's a lot of things we could do to draw people here, but can the Holy Spirit do that? Absolutely. Well, do people want truth? Are they eager to hear truth? Yes. So we need to, to not be thinking of the cleverest techniques and manipulations to get people here. What we need is we need biblical truth being preached in a clear manner, the gospel being clearly stated, or Jesus is going to come and remove the lampstand from his place and, and, the door, and the doors of the church will shut. He does that for each one. He explains his, the importance of being a light to this world. Are we in danger of having the light of this church being snuffed out by the Lord? Yes or no? Absolutely. Who is it dependent on? It's dependent on us as a body. It's not just dependent on the pastor. It's dependent on me and all of us. So we together are the ones that are dependent on the Holy Spirit's power to keep this ministry going. We can't do anything. We don't have the resources. You know what? The world does so much better at wild game feasts than we do. Seriously, they, they know how to put on a big dinner. The world knows how to entertain better than we do. But there's one thing the world cannot do that we do. Give the gospel. Teach the word, right? So we do our best for the Lord under the power of the Holy Spirit. I guess one of the saddest commentaries in the whole Bible, I think, is Samson. Remember Samson and Delilah, the whole hair scene? And... Um, he was used greatly of the Spirit of God. But finally, when his hair was cut, it says, Samson did not know that the Spirit had departed from him. He didn't know it. He just didn't know. 
He thought he could just get out of it like he always did. But instead, he got bound and blinded. <laughs> Wouldn't it be scary if our church, if the Holy Spirit's power left us and we didn't even know it? That would be scary. So let's be dependent on the Lord, dependent on his power. It's all about Christ. It's about what he can do through us, not about how great and clever we are. Father, thank you for this text. The vision of the lampstand. This church is a light to our community. We pray it will burn bright and shine bright so men and women, boys and girls, can hear the gospel and they can trust. They can place their confidence and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Oh, I pray, Father, that we would be humble before you, that we would have you celebrate and rejoice as you watch us minister to this community and to one another. And so, Father, put it in our heart to do our best for you, not by our own strength and resources, not by some clever technique that we can do, but by the absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit, that he will empower us, and that power will be so evident to our community. We need the Holy Spirit's power here in this church. We cannot save people. We cannot do anything without him. So thank you for the ministry of the church. Thank you for Israel's future ministry when they will all be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will be poured out on them and they will be the priesthood of nation that you designed for them. So Father, we're just excited about the future. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.